0: Welcome back to Shade Podcast with me Lou Mensa, and our ninth series where we'll explore the influences that shape black contemporary art today. Inspired by the tradition of the harmony between the lyrical and the visual these artist conversations reveal the people and the sounds that inspire their practice. There's a playlist to accompany the series which was created for you by my guests so enjoy this convening of spirits to mark the end of the year. It's a pleasure to introduce today's guest, Jose Campos, who is also known by his artist's name, Studio Linker. Jose considers himself to be an artist that doesn't belong anywhere apart from the world he creates. He says that, I have a deep longing to connect with the land of my ancestors. It's a longing that I don't realize is always there until it gets fulfilled. Jose was forcibly displaced as a consequence of El Salvador's violent civil war He was one of the first wave of child immigrants moving to the USA. Travelling illegally with his mother, the family lived as illegal aliens cleaning houses with no fixed address. His paintings depict regal figures that seek to decentralise the collective idea of Saldorian identity. Proud, courageous and visible, all the things that a young studio Lenker couldn't be. The work playfully references a combination of biographical anecdotes, personal reflections, and folkloric iconography. Visual cues are recalibrated to reclaim autonomy over a fragmented history. Studio Lenker is based at Tracy Emmons TKE Studios in Margate on the Kent coast of England. This year, José has held solo exhibitions at the Parish Art Museum in New York, the Soho Review in London, and at Halsey Mackey in New York. His group shows include Hospital Rooms at Hauser and Worth in London and the Turner Contemporary in Margate, and he is represented by Carl Friedman Gallery. It was the playful, brave and forthright gazes within José's imagined characters that drew me first to his work. The work is deeply rooted in a connection with Jose's ancestry. And we start the conversation by hearing about how these ancestral stories inform his work and his artist's name, Studio Lenka.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Lou. I'm a big fan of this podcast. I feel really connected with the guests that you have and some of the things that they discuss.
0: Thank you so much. And jumping right in, I'd like to start by talking about your artist name, Studio Lenka.
1: So I work under the name Studio Lenka, and I break those two words down. So studio, it's a reference to how I arrived at being an artist. My earliest memory was making sculptures in the garage with whatever I could find. I remember I had a volcanoes project at school, And I had used a small wicker bin that I turned upside down and covered with artificial flowers. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. When I got to school, I overheard one of the teachers make fun of it. And that stuck with me because I felt othered in that moment by someone that was meant to care for me. I also realized in that moment that my family didn't get that we needed to go and buy the kit for making volcanoes like the other students. So I was existing in these two worlds at the same time. So my practice started as a way of escaping my reality, escaping the day to day. It was a need, it was a want to express myself through materials. That's what was speaking to me. And it wasn't something that I learned or was taught to me. It was something that was sort of innate. After that, I went to the San Francisco School of the Arts, which is now called the Ruth Asawa School of the Arts in San Francisco. And it was a public high school where you didn't have to pay for an arts education. There, I was taught by Alonzo King, who's a choreographer. He has a company called Lions Ballet, and he really was choosing dancers from diverse backgrounds and diverse body shapes as well. He was teaching us the ballet technique, but he was also teaching us how to make decisions that went against the conventions of ballet, which is extremely Eurocentric. So I had this teacher that all of a sudden was making space for my difference, being queer, being Latino, being undocumented. So that was really powerful. That was another sort of studio that I was working in. Then I experimented with video and photography, I had an interest in fashion, so the word studio felt appropriate to hold my practice. It was a, a way of elevating what I was doing for myself. And then Lenca refers to the indigenous people of eastern El Salvador and Honduras, where my mother has roots. They have been wiped out through colonization, so when I sign my work over and over with the name Lenka. It's a sort of engraving of their name to remember them. Positioning myself as Studio Lenka means I can play with different materials and processes, but I also have a duty to investigate different forms of knowledge, make visible people and ideas that are usually hidden, and try to include the voices of other communities. So that's where the name Studio Lenka comes. In terms of my daily practice, I think one of the things I think of immediately is taking up space as an act of resilience. By occupying space as an artist, I bring with me all the triumphs of my ancestors, which make it possible for me to be here in this studio at TKE, traveling and showing my work. So I think that that's something that I think of first. Storytelling is incredibly important to me. I often call my mother on the phone and we have conversations about El Salvador, about how we do things, recipes, food, memories. And I think that that practice is, is incredibly important. It's a connection to my lineage. I also think of the materials that I have in my studio. I recently made a work called Covija, And that was a painting on a blanket. And it's one of these sort of fuzzy velvet blankets that you find commonplace in the communities that I grew up in. But actually, when I've had the painting here, people have come and visited and looked and and said, oh, we grew up with that blanket as well. So all of a sudden, these materials start to create links between communities from all over the world in a way. And another work is Border Vessel, which we can go into, but mm-hmm. that material is really important. It's a ceramic jug, gallon of water, and it's made using clay from the Rio Grande, which divides Mexico and the U.S. And I also use jade from El Salvador for the lid of the work. And that was a very important Mesoamerican material. The Maya used to bury their leaders with a piece of jade in their mouth in order to help them move through the afterlife. So those materials really sort of speak to me. And then also painting is a big part of my practice and my everyday. I approach painting almost like I did the the ballet bar, which is where you come to it and you see what happens. You're doing kind of the same thing over and over and there's something sort of ritualistic about that process and something also that I thought about when you asked this question of daily practice is also Mm -hmm. how do I include knowledge outside of my own and whose knowledge am I looking at because it can be yeah sort of tricky being an artist and What you decide to look at really impacts what you do. Recently, I've started collaborating with my family in El Salvador. So when I went to make border vessels, I held an ancestral ceremony at a Mayan archaeological site called Casablanca. And we opened a portal for our ancestors. And in order to do that, we had to collect a long list of materials. And I had to use the expertise of my aunt in El Salvador to be able to access those materials. So it's like collaborating with different forms of knowledge. And now her participation in that work is is sort of present in the the final outcome. I also Mm -hmm. think of doing things how we do them. I don't know Mm -hmm. how else to say that. My environment, so how I manipulate the studio space, the materials. In it, it's easy for me because, in a way, I'm comparing it to the times I had to clean houses, move all my belongings in bin bags because of domestic abuse, mm. look after my siblings, hide for being undocumented. That's taught me about work being real and direct. Growing up, there was the official way of doing things and the way that actually worked. This is how I approach art making. When a gallery asks to work with me, I think, okay, how am I going to get Salvadoran people to come and see my work in this country? And it usually starts with food. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, I've been working site specifically a lot this year. I worked in Mexico City with migrants who are currently crossing the U.S. border. I worked at the Rio Grande to collect materials there for border vessels. I've returned to El Salvador multiple times and I'm going to Guatemala to work with indigenous communities as well to learn about candlelight. So all of these things are sort of this ball that make up my daily practice.
0: You create a commune of people, of spirits, of hearts, of minds. Do you feel those presences in the studio? Or when you're at home thinking about the work that you're going to be creating?
1: I think about putting work out into this world and it having an energy and navigating it. I often think of my mother (laughs) and I often think, would she look at this and know what it's trying to say? Yes. And I think that's really important. You know, you want Mm. it to reach
0: the people who... The work is embodying.
1: Yes, absolutely. I also worked as a teacher for almost 10 years in London and I think of the students as well that I worked with. A lot of the work that we did was about trying to get them to feel included in the art curriculum, taking them to galleries, bringing artists in when the school didn't allow us to go out. And so I think about those students walking into my studio and looking at my work and (laughs) just wondering what they would say.
0: But in this series, I'm also thinking about the connection between the visual and the lyrical. Sound, music, you know, rhythm, and how one practice can inform the other. And the reason why I was thinking about that is that I happened across a quote by the photographer Ming Smith, who was a previous guest on the show, and she said that if people could feel what I feel when I hear a Billie Holiday song, that's what I would want them to feel when they look at my work. And of course we understand that we can't kind of instruct a response in any viewer, but I understand that what she's trying to say is that this is where our heart was when she was creating this work. And can you feel like my heart, you know? And I just wonder what your Billy Holiday song would be.
1: I would say it would have to be Anything by Selena Quintanilla. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had to choose one song, it would be a song called Como La Flor. And Selena was a Mexican-American singer who was unfortunately murdered at 23. She spoke English. And she sang in Spanish. She was raised as a daughter of an immigrant family and was loved by Latin people on both sides in the US and in Central America. It was the first time I saw myself represented in music and culture on this type of scale. There is a a movie about her life and there's a famous scene where she is nominated for the Grammys and she goes to the mall And she's looking for a dress to buy. And the shop assistant looks at her and sees that she's Latina and says, oh, sorry, our dresses are quite expensive. And this actually happened to her. And then one of the the people working in the stock room was a a Latino. And he was like, oh, my God, you're Selena. And then all of a sudden the whole mall sort of shuts down because (laughs) there's this like icon there. But that spoke to me, that that part in in the film and her practice as a singer, Mm. it speaks to me because it's about growing up in a place that sees you as second class, but still having to make things work. I kind of connect with that music in relation to my practice because that's what I'm trying to do is like I'm trying to sort of put joy out there rather than trauma and reliving trauma. Yes. Um, so it's about color it's about yes. visibility and the most beautiful way
0: absolutely I'm thinking about the sounds of home for you the sounds of your ancestors or family life or domestic life or the voices are those sounds surrounding you when you work I'm interested in the vibrations the energy the kind of Support you, elevate you, and help you channel your focus and connect with your creative
1: source. I think that's really important because I'm based in an English seaside town. I sometimes feel isolated from my roots. One thing that I can think of is um, I don't know how to describe it, but I sort of imagine conversations in my head Mm. in a Salvadoran dialect. Mm accent. (laughs) And I, you know, when I go to El Salvador, I sort of like observe everything as much as I can to sort of like bring it back into my Mm. studio. Mm. So when I'm making decisions about what to do in the studio, I kind of play that in my head Mm. or have conversations in my head using the accent or what I might have heard and think, does this work fit in this world? Mm. Would my tío understand this work and would he love it? So I think that that is something that I do to sort of align my work using that.
0: I really thought it was important to make space for a conversation about Border Vessel, a series of ceramics that you constructed using clay, sourced from the Rio Grande on the US-Mexico border these pots or carrying vessels. I saw them as a manifestation of everything carried by those who have tried to leave their past lives and look to the future by trying to cross the border. And these vessels held all of that. They were so powerful. Can you just tell us about this work and what did these ceramics hold for you?
1: Mm. So the idea came to me in a dream. And I think that's really important because it was about listening to this force greater than myself. And Border Vessels are a collaboration with eight people. And I say it's a cross-border collaboration because I worked with people on the U.S. border and people in El Salvador and here in the U.K. I worked with Mexican-American ceramicists They helped me source clay from the Rio Grande. And when they were doing that, they were watching people cross that river into the U.S. So the material is charged with these journeys. A lot of people lose their lives. Their bodies go back into the land. It's powerful sort of emotional material. And we made these ceramic bottles of water. It's a journey that I made. I with my mother when I was four years old, so I really wanted to kind of confront that experience as well. Once we made the ceramics in Texas and Brownsville, I flew with the ceramics to El Salvador, and that was interesting as well. It felt like I was taking a body back to El Salvador, and you know they're incredibly. Incredibly fragile works. It was really important that I took them back because when we talk about immigration, it's just into the US and to the North. And this was kind of like subverting that, but it was a journey returning back. And when we got back, I worked with my aunt to collect materials and to sort of facilitate an ancestral ceremony at this archaeological site and to create closure for these lives that have been lost in this way they are a memorial to the the people that have lost their lives really i also worked with um, jade for the lids and that was of course an important material the jade is from el salvador so yeah it's it's about including alternative histories alternative knowledge and also linking a colonial past to the, the current conditions of immigration
0: Did you feel that your story was being held in those vessels too?
1: Yes. I mean, they're in my studio now and they Mm. have such a presence. I don't like lifting them and moving them around, it feels almost disrespectful. So they're in a very safe place and they're so charged. I think of my family, I think of like, you know, all the stories of people failing to cross the border crossing the border successfully. But then I think about all of the other families that have had these experiences as well.
0: And we're coming to the end of a conversation, but also the end of the year. And it's a time where I think it can be helpful to think about being still. You know, we've talked a lot about energy today, and I'm thinking about the reverse of that, which is stillness. And I just wondered if stillness is a part of your creative process. Mm. You know, just the act of you creating your work. There's so much movement, but you move across continents as well. You know, you're in perpetual motion. And so I wonder how stillness is part of that process. And how do you plan to slow down as we get to the end of the year?
1: So I moved to Margate for the sea and the sky the scale of this landscape is mesmerizing and hypnotic when you first come to Margate you know and you get off the train the first thing you're greeted by is this big open sky and before I was in London where there was so much movement and being next to the sea it puts things into perspective and, and all the stresses of life seem to stop and stillness is created in this moment so i think I've had clarity being by the sea and being able to sort of paint and make work because of it. And I think that as the year closes, I will be looking to spend more time with my dog by the sea (laughs) and um, just taking it in, really.
0: Thank you, Jose.
1: Thank you so much, Lou.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Shade Podcast with me and Jose. I was so moved by Jose's story about his young creative self, how he followed his art despite the challenges and how he's turned his difficult story of immigration into a fulfilling life as an artist. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Subscribe to Shade Podcast to listen to all the episodes in this series. Also explore Shade Art Review on Substack, joining thousands of Art Curious listeners like you who are discovering more about the work of visual artists from the Black Diaspora. There you'll find art listings, comment, artist spotlights and guest posts, and free subscriptions are available. But for the full Shade Art Review experience, sign up today to receive 20% off your annual membership, an offer which is available for the duration of this series. This series of Shade Podcasts was produced and hosted by me, Lou Menser, and mixed by Tess Davidson. See you next time.